Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is where we're going to be today. We're going to begin in verse number 13 of chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. And as you're finding that on your phone or in the Bible that you brought or on the screen in front of you, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship we just had. Thank you for what you're doing here at first. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit would move. God, that your Spirit would move in this room. God, that your, your, the truths of the gospel would shine forth. And we pray, God, today that someone who doesn't know you as Savior, God, today would be that day. Today would be that special day that they give their life to you. Or maybe today is the day that somebody makes the decision, you know what, I need to be baptized. I need to say I'm not ashamed. So, Father, we ask that you would do exceedingly abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, I just got told recently that here in Naples that one out of every three people is good-looking. So once you look to your left, look to your right. If it's not them, it's got to be you. All right, thank you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call him on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. I love to travel. I've been a lot of places. I'm like Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere, man. Uh, maybe you've heard that song. Maybe you haven't, but I like to travel. Uh, I, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is going to Epcot and traveling around the world. And one of the things that I enjoy at Epcot is eating around the world. Have you ever ate around the world? It, it is awesome. All right. So growing up, uh, with my kid, not me growing up, but with my kids, one of the things that we did is we used to eat our way around the world on like 40 bucks. And you would be surprised what you can get for 40 bucks. It's not much. But I love to travel. I love to eat when I travel. Uh, one, one of the, my favorite places is Israel, and, and I love the food there, and I love to go places that, that most people don't go as tourists. You know, I was thinking about traveling, and you know, when you are in another country that's not your home, you're typically one of three different types of people. Now, this isn't like everybody, but you're typically one of three. One, you're either a tourist, two, you're an immigrant, or third, you're an exile. And so let's just think about that. A tourist is someone who loves going to another place. Uh, they love the country that they're in. They don't plan on living there. They don't want to learn the language. They don't want to really learn the culture. They just kind of want to be there, see the sights, enjoy the food, enjoy the time. They're, they're, they're not going to get too deep in the politics. They're not going to get too deep in the things. Here's what a tourist does. They take pictures, post it on Instagram to show how awesome they are, and then they're just obnoxious, right? Now, that's a tourist. An immigrant is somewhere different, and we have, and I love, that's one thing I love about our church, we have a lot of people that have immigrated from other countries 
to here in the greater Southwest Florida area. And so uh, an immigrant is someone who seeks to make their new country, their permanent home. And so they, they do everything they can to make their lives comfortable here. They learn the language, they assimilate, they immerse themselves in the culture. And so they are wanting to be here for the rest of their lives. They are entrenched in their new country. Now, the third is an exile. Now, an exile is someone whose home is somewhere else, but for an undefined period of time, uh, they make their home in a new place. And so they invest in the community, uh, they form relationships there, they learn the culture, they learn the language, but even though they put their roots down and they work for the good of their community, they are longing for the day when they can go back home. Well, the reason I tell you that is because Peter here is writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor, and they are experiencing difficult situations. It's a hard season, and he is encouraging them and how they can live their Christian life in a hostile hostile society to not just survive, but to thrive. You know, some days it's just like, I just want to survive, but God wants you to do more than survive. He wants you to thrive. And so Peter has called these group of believers and all believers everywhere, exiles and strangers. And so we are strangers to this world. And so we, as being exiles, we don't really belong here. We belong to God, and our citizenship is in heaven. And one day, we're going to be with God in heaven for eternity. But until that day comes, we have to live here on earth. And so what Peter here is writing and telling us to do is he has, we have to have a, a mind shift. We have to change our mentality towards the world. We have to see that this world is not our true home. That we're like E.T., okay? We're waiting to go home. And we, therefore, to survive and to thrive, we have to think different. And so according to Peter, for us to live differently, we have to think differently. And so this is what I hope you get from the message. The battle for hope and holiness in a hostile world starts in the mind, reminding you and I who we are in Christ. And so what Peter's going to teach us today is that we are called to set our hope on the grace of God and to set our lives apart for the holiness of God of God. Two things, set on hope, set apart for holiness. Let's dive in. Verse 13, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore, Spurgeon would ask? Well, it points us back. It points us back to that long run-on sentence from verses 3 through 12 that Peter tells us that our glorious salvation was planned, accomplished, and applied by God Almighty. If you're saved, would you say amen? amen. That was all a work from God from A to Zinc. And so based upon the blessings of a merciful God, you have been born again into a living hope and you have been given a lasting inheritance because you are an adopted child of God and there's nothing that will ever change that. And so in a response to what God has done for you that you couldn't do yourself, this is how you live your life. And so therefore, now notice what I'm going to do here. Notice the main verb here. Therefore, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the main verb, set your hope. And so Peter says, in light of all that God has done for you, place your hope, place your heart, place your mind on the day that your salvation will be complete. On that day where Christ breaks through the clouds, comes in chariots of fire and says, come on home, the living hope, the second coming of Christ. Peter says, place your hope on that day. Place your hope there. Here's why. We have to place our hope on that day because this day may stink. This day may be filled with trials. This day may be filled with sorrow. This day may be filled with pain. If we can't put our hope on that day, we're not going to make it this day. Have you ever had a day you're just like, God, if I could just make it through, I'll be so happy. 
Well, God says here through Peter, you have to look for that day to help survive this day. So how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. He gives us two participles. The participle, if you want to know how a participle is found, it's found by looking typically at these words that have ing. So you have two ing words there, preparing and being. So for us to set our hope on the glorious gospel, the second coming of Christ, we have to first prepare our minds, preparing your minds for action. In King Jimmy, it says this, gird up the loins of your mind. And so I know many of you, many of you have girded up your loins this week, right? And here's what that means. It's a picture of a person in ancient days that, were, that was preparing to run or preparing for war. But back in those days, most men and women wore long flowing robes. I mean, could you imagine coming to church in a long flowing robe? And so imagine here, you're now to go to war, you're now to go to fight. And so for, in order for you to fight somebody, in order for you to run, you had to gather up, you had to hike that robe between your legs and then tuck it into your belt because there was no spandex in that day. There was no fabletics, okay? And so to be prepared for action, to be prepared for war, you had to do so without restriction. You don't want to fight a battle in a moo-moo. That would be very difficult. And so here, he says, you've got to prepare the loins, not of your body, not of your robe, but of your mind. That is, you have to prepare your mind for action so that you can run, so that you can fight, so that you can be ready for whatever comes. And so that's why he says, you set your hope on the grace of God fully by one, preparing your mind for action, but two, being sober-minded. Now, when we think of sobriety, we think of drunkenness. And so just as alcohol affects every aspect of the human body. So those of you who have been drunk or those of you who have drunk a lot of alcohol, you understand that it clouds your thinking and impairs your judgment. It slows your reflexes. It causes you to do things you normally wouldn't do. Peter says, we need to be clear-minded. We need to be alert. Now, did you notice something here? To set your hope fully on the grace of God requires you do two things, but two things with what? Your mind. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. And why is he telling us this? Because the battle for hope in your life begins in your mind. The biggest battlefield in your life is often your own mind. Why? Because your thoughts control you, and therefore you have to control your thoughts. You have to prepare yourself mentally every day to face the challenges of everyday life. And the reason why many of us are losing spiritual battles is because we're not showing up mentally for the spiritual war. Craig Rochelle in his book on this topic says that your mind is a battlefield and the battle for your life is always won or lost in your mind. You may not recognize the battle you're in while it's wreaking havoc in your life, but your mind is a war zone and you are under attack. And listen, my friends, if there ever was a day that Christians are mentally assaulted on a regular basis, it is today. And therefore, we have to focus our minds fully on the hope of the gospel every day. Now, I know some of you have struggled with mental health. In the pandemic, that's been, we've had the, the viral, the, the physical sickness uh, pandemic that has gone on for these past almost seems like two years or year and a half. But on top of that has been the mental health issue in our country. Just a few months ago, there was a study that was told that in Japan, the nation of Japan, that there was more people that died by suicide in that year than some that even died of COVID. 
It's sad what we're seeing in our society. And some of you, you struggle with mental health because it's a biochemical thing. Something genetically, you have some struggles. And I'm not talking about that kind of mental issue. But here's what I'm saying, that for most Christians that don't have biochemical issues, good mental health in your life is a result of a mind that is focused on the hope of the gospel. Because every day, your mind is being filled with things that tear you down, tempt you away, and tell you lies. Every day. And therefore, we as believers need to stop listening to the lies that we hear, the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, and the lies of the devil. And we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You know what Satan's strategy is? Satan's strategy to win the battle of your mind is to get you to believe lies about God, to get you to believe lies about others, and to get you to believe lies about yourself. And every day we're inundated with these lies. I mean, every day we wake up and we think these things and we have others speak these things in our life or we see things out on television and we begin to compare our lives to other people's lives. We get on social media and we feel depressed. For us to make it in this world, we have to have mental toughness. Mental toughness only comes by putting your hope in Jesus Christ alone. The hope of your life is not what you do to be accepted by God so that maybe one day you'll go to heaven. That's not the kind of hope is that, you know, I hope that I'm a good enough person that maybe I'll go to heaven. I was talking to somebody this week and I said, if you died right now, where would you go? And they looked at me and they said, I hope I would go to heaven. And I said, do you know you would go to heaven or do you hope you would go to heaven? They said, I hope I would go to heaven. I said, well, why do you hope and not know? And they said, because I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to do good things, but I'm not sure. That's not what he's talking about here. If you have a hope-so salvation, you have no salvation. You need to have a no-so salvation. And that no-so salvation is not a distorted hope, not a hope that maybe one day if I live good enough, if my good works outweigh my bad works, that maybe I'll go to heaven because that kind of hope is a distorted hope and it leads to self-righteousness or it leads to self-loathing. Our hope is not based on what we do for God. Our hope is based on what God and Jesus Christ has done for us. It's grace. So we have to call to our minds on a regular basis the blessings we have. You have to understand that you are so blessed. If you're a Christian, you are blessed. I'm blessed. Here are the words that he uses in verses 3 through 12. We've received great mercy. We've been born again. We have a living hope. Jesus Christ is alive through the resurrection of Jesus. We have an inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It just keeps getting better and better and better and better and better. It's kept in heaven, so we don't have to worry about losing it. It's guarded by God, so nobody's going to touch it. We have this salvation that is for the praise, glory, and honor that we don't deserve, but yet we get because Jesus has won it for us. And so we have to get our minds energetically and clearly in gear so that we can passionately hope. We've got to train our minds. We've got to retrain our minds. I know we got a lot of football fans in here, right? Football fans? The Gators won, right? Praise God. Guess what happens next weekend? Kentucky and Florida. All right. We'll see the mood I am. I may need to put my mind into action. I mean to set my hope on the Jesus and not on Kentucky. But anyway, there's a guy named Jamar Chase. He's a rookie. A fifth pick in the NFL draft from the Louisiana State University who plays wide receiver for the mighty Cincinnati Bengals. And he was horrible in the offseason. This is a first-round draft pick, horrible. The guy couldn't catch a cold. He couldn't catch COVID, okay? He couldn't catch anything. And so they interviewed him about his transition from college ball to the NFL. 
And why is it that he was struggling? And here's what he says. I'm going to summarize it. He says, the biggest thing, the transition, is that the ball is different in the NFL. It's bigger. And in college, you have white stripes on the ball, but in the NFL, you don't have that. All you have is just a big brown ball that just comes at you. And he says, the problem that I'm having, the reason I can't catch balls like I was doing at LSU is I don't see the ball. And here's what you have to understand. If you can't see the ball, you can't catch the ball. So what Jamar is having to do, he's having to train his mind to see the ball so that he can catch the ball. And what I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is this. You and I have to retrain our minds to see the grace of God in our lives. Because right now, you, all you may see is a blob, but you need to see the ball of God's grace. And the reason why all you see is a blob or you don't see anything at all is because all of your life you've been told you're worthless. All of your life you've been told you're lazy. All your life you've been told you're stupid, you're fat, you're dumb, you're never going to amount to anything. All your life you've had people speak into your life. You've had people hurt your life. You've had people walk out in your life. And here's what God is saying. I ain't walking out. That you are chosen, you are loved, you are adopted, you are mine. And one day, I'm going to come back and get you, and you're going to be with me for all eternity. And everything sad is going to be untrue. You just wait. That is the hope we have to set our minds on if we're going to survive and thrive down below. So in light of all those great things, set your minds on the hope. Set on hope. Number two, set apart for holiness. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me, she said, Alan, you'll never understand the love of God until you're a parent. And then I became a parent, and I, and I get it. As a parent, I love my kids. I do stuff for my kids. I feed my kids, which is good to do. I clothe them, sacrifice for them, but I make demands of them. And here's what the thing, I have to constantly as a parent teach them, I, daddy is for you, he's not against you. Daddy loves you. When daddy says not to do something, it's not because he's a masochist. It's not because he's trying to punish you. It's because he loves you and he actually may know what's best for you. And so here's the thing. When you are a kid, you think your parents are dumb. The truth is you are dumb. You were living in your former ignorance. You were ignorant. And what happens is when you become a parent, you realize just how dumb you were. Amen? And you realize, you know what? I really was a jerk. And guess what? You become like your parents. You begin to talk like your parents. You begin to dress like your parents. And then your kids see you're an idiot. But they're really the idiot. And the cycle begins again and again. As obedient children, here's what you have to understand. God is not a tyrant. He's our father. He has loved you, chose you, adopted you, saved you, and blessed you. Praise God. And therefore, he knows what's best for you, and he knows how to live life better than you do. And so don't be fitting into the mold of your former ignorance. Don't act like a fool. Don't be disobedient. Don't live life the way you used to live. Don't love the world and everything else in it. Don't live for yourself. Be different. Here's a weird thing. In a day of nonconformity, 
where we have 85 gender pics that you can make on Facebook, most Christians are conforming to the world. In a day of nonconformity, Christians are conforming. We talk like the world. We act like the world. And here's the thing. When I talk about the world, I'm not talking about the people around you. I'm talking about the world system that stands in, in, in opposition to everything of God. Let me give you a great definition of what worldliness is. David Wells says this, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. You can see it on TV. Things that used to be like weird, abnormal, wrong, evil, people are saying it's normal. And things that used to be like, this is how you should live, it's strange. We live in a kind of an upside down world. I feel like we really are on an episode of Stranger Things as you watch the news. It's an upside down world. But here's the reason. The reason why it is the way it is is because we are so influenced by the world. We, we have fallen into the tropes of this world and we have fit into the mold. And so we act like the world. We think like the world. We react like the world. We spend money like the world. We raise our kids like the world. And we have the same priorities of the world. And we wonder why are we raising kids that are weird? And worldly. Now, some people have the idea. You know what, Pastor? Here's the trip. Here's here's the thing. If we can just be better Christians, then the world would love us, and they would appreciate us more. Ha! Huh. No. Obedience to God comes at a cost, and the more you and I stand out to the world the more friends of the world will lose. See, saving yourself for marriage, staying sober on the weekends and during the week, turning down a promotion where you can make a lot more money, but at the cost of leaving your church community, but it's actually saying, I'm gonna turn that down because I love what God is doing. Refusing to say the F-bomb, not watching what everyone else is watching are things that the world doesn't understand and they don't like. But we're not of this world. We have a different father. He says, so therefore, as obedient children, don't act like the rest of the world. So he gets in verse 15. He says, but as he, who's that? Your daddy, who called you is holy, you also should be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, some of you are like, holy what? Holy moly. What is this about? Well, holiness is one of the central themes of the Bible. It's found over 700 times. And so what does it mean to be holy? Well, let me just give you some definitions. To be holy literally means to be wholly devoted, to be separate, to be unique, one of a kind, not common, not ordinary, distinct otherness. In my house, growing up as a kid, we had this big cabinet that had a glass on front. And in this cabinet were displayed these plates called china. Fine china. I always ask, why don't we use those plates? Oh, no, no, no. Those are for special people. <laughs> and we never used them. And we never had anybody into our house that we ever used them for. 
I mean, maybe one day my parents will break out the china. Maybe when Jesus comes, Jesus, you can have some china. You can eat on the china. Because let me just tell you something. Growing up, we didn't eat off china. We eat off of paper plates. Amen? One day we actually got, you know, we kind of got plastic plates and then they melted in the microwave. And so we went back to paper plates. And so like when I got married, normally like you break the plate. Well, they just ripped the paper plate in half and said, you know, because it's special, right? It's holy. China is holy. Okay. Fine. China is holy. I mean, remember growing up and coming to grandma's house and her front room would be these couches from like the 1930s or 20s or 50s. And they would be covered in plastic. Have you ever sat on the plastic couch? Like here it is, this comfortable couch. But grandma don't want you sitting on the fabric. She wants you sitting on the plastic. And sometimes there would even be a blanket over the plastic because the couch was holy, set apart. So probably I envision one day in heaven, grandma, my mom will be there and Jesus will sit on the couch with no plastic eating off the china one day, okay? <laughs> That'll be a glorious day. That's what it means to be, it's distinct, it's set apart, it's not common, it's not Tupperware. See, God is holy. There's none like him. He is utterly unique, he's set apart. He doesn't fit into the other categories. He has his own category. And every attribute of God is holy. Right now the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. Kevin DeYoung says in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness, he says, you can't make sense of the Bible without understanding that God is holy and that this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. The Bible could not be any clearer. The reason for your entire salvation, the design behind your deliverance, the purpose for which God chose you in the first place is holiness. See, our God, our holy God, set us apart to live in a way that reflects even however imperfectly his holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's what you have to understand. That the moment you became a Christian, the moment you were saved, you were in that moment declared holy in Jesus Christ. And that is your union with Jesus makes you and I once and for all positionally holy in the eyes of God. And that never will change. But yet, we are commanded to pursue holiness, to work out what God has done. And so what does it mean to pursue holiness? He says, be holy for I am holy. It means at least two things. And we're going to unpack this as we go throughout this entire book, but it means at least two things. Number one, it means a holy devotion to God. What that gets at is that our commitment to God should be on a completely different level than our commitment to anything else. You know, I should be committed to my kids. I should be committed to my wife. But my commitment to God and to Jesus is on a completely different level. It should be Jesus over everything. He has to not just be the first of many others. He is my life. Just imagine this afternoon, I went to my wife, April, and I said, I said, April, of all the girls that are in my life, right now, you're number one. How do you think she would feel? Or if I said, you know, of all the girls I've loved before, you're my favorite. 
That wouldn't be very smart, right, ladies? Because here's what you have to understand about my wife. Ain't no woman like the one I got. April is not just one on a list of other women. She gets her own list in which she is the sole member. So she ain't just number one. She's the only one. Same is true with God. God just can't be an add-on in your life. God is your life. Nothing else, no one else in this universe compares to him, and no one else and nothing else should get the spot on that list. Because he doesn't just take a place in your life. He doesn't just take priority in your life. He takes precedence over your life. Holy devotion to God. But secondly, what it means is a holy ambition to obey God. He says, be holy in all your conduct. It's not just pursuing God in my mind, but also with my life. And it's not a checklist. Christianity is not a checklist so that if I do this, if, you know, if I don't smoke, if I don't chew, and if I don't go with the girls that do, then I'm good. A moral checklist doesn't reach the heart. Some of you are like, well, I went to church this week. I can now sin and act like a heathen the rest of the week. No. And some of you may feel successful in your Christianity because you don't do drugs, you don't overeat, you serve the homeless, you don't sleep around, you didn't look at porn this week, and you recycle weekly. But yet you're a self-righteous jerk. That's a problem. We should desire to obey God because we love God. Now let's go back to this whole thought of checklist. How many of you would love to be married and have a checklist marriage? in which everything you did for your spouse and everything your spouse did for you was just on a reciprocity, on a checklist. You know, the, the, a few, few months ago, a few years ago, I knew this guy, and he and his wife, they'd been married for a long time, and he had a, an old-fashioned calendar, a calendar, uh, a paper one, and every day that he told his wife he loved her, he put a check over it on the day. And so he was telling me about this, almost like he was bragging about it. And I said, well, why do you do that? He said, well, a few years ago, she told me I never told her that I loved her. And so to prove that I did, I told her that every day. And every day that I did it, I put a check mark. And so any time she ever questioned me, I could show her the calendar. <laughs> what a great marriage they had. <laughs> the question I had is, do you really love the woman? And I was afraid the answer I may get, you know. Listen, the holiness is not a checklist. It's not just doing it so that I can show God, hey, look what I did, God. You got to bless me this week. It's not. Holiness is a desire to live life the way that God is intended because you love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Just like you love your spouse, you're going to be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. That demand for loyalty doesn't pervert the marriage relationship. It promotes it. So how can I have this holy devotion and this holy ambition? How can I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 17 through 21 tell us that there's a secret to holy living. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, to each one's deeds, he says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so here, if you want to live a holy life, some would read this and say, well, you've got to be scared of God. So the reason I don't do things is I'm just scared of what God will do. I want you to understand that that's not what this is teaching. Peter is not saying the reason you should live a holy life is because if you don't, God will send you to hell and you'll be a crispy critter. No. 
The fear of the Lord in the Bible is something far greater. Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice in Trembling, says that the fear of God is a mixture of awe and intimacy. You are in awe of a holy, righteous, omnipotent, that's all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent everywhere God. And yet you also have this intimate relationship with this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere God. This God who could who could have killed you in your sleep for, because he knew what you did that day, but yet chose not to because of his great love. You should be in awe of that. And so he says, if you call God your father, understand that you should live your life as a child who wants to not disappoint, not offend, not disrespect, not misrepresent your father. We don't live in fear of judgment. And the reason why, he continues, he says, the reason why you fear, but not a fear of judgment, is because Jesus was judged for you. Verse 18, knowing. Knowing what? You live in fear in your exile because you know that you have been ransomed. Now, when we think of ransom, we think of the price that's paid to a kidnapper. It's a price you pay to get something back. And so if your kid's kidnapped... The bad guys demand a ransom. You pay the ransom, you get the kid back. But here's the thing. God didn't pay your ransom to somebody else. He he didn't pay the devil back. The only thing the devil gets is hell, okay? That's all he gets. It wasn't like God paid the devil back to get you out of hell. No, the reason why God had to pay is because his righteousness and his holiness demanded a payment for your sin. For God to be right, to be both the just and the justifier, he couldn't just wink at sin and and just say, well, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug and we're not going to deal with it. No, God had to deal with your sins, and so the only way he could bring you back is he had to buy you back, and the only way he could buy you back, well, notice what happens, is he didn't didn't ransom you uh, through silver or gold. They didn't buy you back with money. The only way he could bring you back is he had to buy you back, and the only way he could buy you back is he had to give something that was of infinite worth. Silver and gold cannot do that. Only what? The blood of Jesus Christ. The spotless, holy blood of Jesus. Only that could redeem you from the feudal ways of your forefathers. Listen, there is nothing that your daddy or your mama can do. There's nothing you can do. Only what God can do that can save you. God has no grandkids. And so, like a lamb without spot or blemish, Jesus was perfectly holy even though we were unholy. And here's what happens. God took his greatest treasure and he took us who were his, who, who was trash. You know what you and I were before Jesus? Trash. Garbage. And God took Jesus and put Jesus in our place. Jesus became trash so we could become his treasure. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very stainly deep within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help and do, God, through his love, lifted me. 
And this love is not an emotion. This love is a person. And the Bible tells us that this person was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The second member of the Trinity, God Almighty, had a plan for salvation. Your salvation was not a, uh uh-oh. It wasn't a plan B. God knew the complete program of our salvation before the world began. And so therefore, God, in his great mercy, revealed Jesus to us. We believed in him. And through Jesus, like Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, we will live and find our hope in God. And that's what causes us to live a life of holiness. Not fear of hell, but the grace of God. As you set your mind on hope, It prepares you to live a life of holiness. So let's end. The battle for hope and holiness starts in the mind, reminding us of who we are in Christ. What does that mean? Preacher, you say, man, you you said all this stuff, and I don't, how does that help me tomorrow? How does it help me? Here's how it helps you. Stay with me. Don't leave. Every day, You and I have to remind ourselves who we are in Jesus. We have to remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us, and we have to remind ourselves what Jesus has promised to us every day. Every day. Have you seen the movie Toy Story 4? I love it. I really do. If you're not familiar with the Toy Story saga, then you've been living under a rock. But God bless you. I encourage you this afternoon to go watch all Toy Story for the glory of God. (laughs) Disney Plus. But the story of Toy Story is about a young girl named Bonnie. She's a kindergartner. It's her first day of school. She's the proud owner of Buzz Lightyear. And Woody. She goes to school. She's sad. The teacher puts all these different little things on the table. Glue and scissors and little eyes and little things. And she says, create something out of the stuff. And so Bonnie was there. She was sad. There was a trash can nearby. She looked into the trash can and she saw this plastic spoon fork affectionately known as a spork. And she pulls it out of the trash and she takes the little beady eyes and the little mouth that she made and she put feet, she broke a popsicle stick, she put it on the bottom for feet, she wrote her name on the bottom of the feet and this was her toy and she loved Forky. That was was his name, Forky. And this was her favorite toy and she loved this toy but there was a problem. Why don't you see what the problem was? Trash? No, no, no. toys. They're all toys. Trash. No, 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 that's the trash. These are your friends. Come on. Trash. No, no, it's okay. Trash. Woody, I have a question. Um, well, actually, not just one. I have all of them. Trash. I have all the questions. Uh, why does he want to go to the trash? Because he was made from trash. trash. Look, I know this is a little strange, but you got to trust me on this. Trash. Forky is the trash. most important toy trash. to Bonnie right now. The problem is, 
Forky thought he was trash, but he really was a toy. He was a treasure. And so the whole movie, a lot of it is about Woody constantly taking care of Forky, keeping him from throwing himself away. And all throughout the movie, Woody's going to remind Forky, you are not trash. You are a toy. So here's a question. What made Forky a toy rather than trash? The answer is the love of Bonnie. She loved that little toy so much that she put her name on him because he was her creation and she treasured him. Well, what makes you treasure and not trash? The love of Jesus. You are his creation. And he put his name on your heart and he put your name on his hand. And so if God calls you his treasure, stop thinking you are trash. Stop trying to go back to the trash can and start living your life for the one who took you out of the trash can and made you his treasure. In my friend's church, we should never call trash what God has made his treasure. The good news is that God is still taking what we think is trash and turning it into his treasure. And Jesus is here and he will save you. He will change you. He will make you a new person. It is not based on who you are. It is not based on what you've done. It is based on who he is and what he has done for you in Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, today's the day. Today's the day. Just this week, we had two guys. They were in church, grew up in the Catholic church, got out of church, just Googled our church, showed up, went to the band of brothers, and two men lovingly pointed them to Jesus, and this week, they trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Praise God. And today, that could be you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this, this moment, this holy moment. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving in this holy moment, calling people to yourself. For, for those of us that are believers, God, help us to set our hope on the grace of God and to set our lives apart for the holiness of God. Help us to pursue that. Help us this week. But God, for those in this room or those watching online that don't have a relationship with you, I pray, God, right now you would just work in their heart, woo them to yourself, call them to yourself so that they would trust you. That God, maybe they would pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I am trash. But I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead. And today I ask that you take me and my trash and turn me into your treasure. I ask that you forgive me of my sins and save me. I surrender my life to you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that there are some in this room or watching online that would pray a prayer like that to trust in you. Father, we love you. Have your way. In Jesus' name.